everybody. I'm Sterling, an alcoholic. Oh, it's so good to be here. Good evening. <laughs> Woo. Y'all look pretty good for a bunch of drunks. And friends are drunks. Wives and husbands are drunks. Kids are drunks. We don't have any dogs in here, do we? Okay. Just in case, I want to give them equal time, too. I'm really pleased to be here. I really am. I, I really am pleased to be I am so thank you. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate the committee for sticking around and hanging in there and making sure I got here, even though I'm the wrong guy. <laughs> but that's okay. Because <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> Tom has done a great job taking me around. I done seen just, I done met a lot of you drunks in your natural habitat. Been to the out the, the the intergroup. I've been over the the dry dock. I went over to uh, Oak Street. So I've seen you and y'all are drunks. Y'all y'all out the house. So great place. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I really am appreciative of that. Congratulations to all those who are new in Alcoholics Anonymous, particularly young ladies. Got 24 hours. I hope this is the last time you have 24 hours. I really do. I hope this is the last time. I truly truly do. Bring your butt back here next year. All right. Through God's grace, this program is sponsorship. I have not found it necessary to take a drink since the 2nd of June, 1981. And for that, I am truly, truly grateful. Whether or not that date impresses you, it impresses me. Because y'all have made an impression on me since that date. And that's why I haven't gone back out. Because I really like it here. I really, I like Alcoholics Anonymous. If you are new in Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, and you're wondering what is this, all this is about, why we are so happy, and why we are having such fun, and all this, what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to capsulize it for just a couple of minutes and tell you what it's all about, and then you go to sleep, okay? Here's the deal. I drank, got in trouble. When I wanted to get out of trouble, I couldn't stop drinking. I desperately came to Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me stop drinking. I stopped drinking. God ruled the obsession. I've been here ever since. Life is really good. Okay. Now, I want to apologize to those who are just here for the dance. I still got to do some more talking because they spent a lot of money to get me here. So, you can just go on, drift off to sleep, and in a little while I'll be done and you can dance. My full name is Sterling David Holmes III. Isn't that something? Now, when you got a Roman numeral at the end of your name, you're supposed to get a country to run. George I, Philip V, you know, Sterling III. I figured I should be the heir apparent to some country. What they gave me was a little sister that moved into my room. So, so from the very beginning, I've had what is called resentment. You know, I am, I'm one of those kids that grew up in the, in the 50s and 60s, and I watched a lot of television. And on television at that time, you had families, the nuclear families that were depicting what American life was about. You know, they had the manicured lawn, and they had the A-framed house, and Dad always came home promptly at 5.30, and Mom always came out of the kitchen, hair always done, cookies on the, t on the stove, the whole deal. Junior mowed the lawn on Saturday afternoon, and they always solved the problem in a half an hour. That was the way it was on TV. Now, you can look at me and tell my mom was not Donna Reed, okay? My dad was not Marcus Welby. I grew up in New York City. 
on the 18th floor of the projects in the South Bronx. So we had no lawn to mow. I had no paper route. And I used to think, in AA, when I first got sober, that if I had had that leave it to beaver kind of lifestyle, I wouldn't be as screwed up as I am. But I have gone to literally thousands of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have sat next to people that have had that exact lifestyle, and they're just as crazy and bent as I am. So it is certainly not my environment that makes me an alcoholic today. I was born to a middle-class African-American family in the South Bronx who worked very hard. There is nothing, my family is not dysfunctional. The only thing that's dysfunctional in my family, you're looking at it, right here. When I try to run their life, they are dysfunctional as hell. <laughs> but when I let them be what they are, which is God's kids, they're fine. So it wasn't the family. Just because I, I didn't go from the pampers to the potty that quick is not the reason why I drank. It is not mom or dad or any of that. The fact is, for those of you who are new, the reason why I'm an alcoholic is because I drank. And the reason why I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous is because I don't drink. That's it. That's it. See, everything else is gravy, but that's the deal. That's the delineation between a drinking drunk and a sober drunk. <laughs> the drinking, okay? I, I'm doing that for some people that might have that confused. This is Alcoholics Anonymous, and we stop drinking here. At least we try. We have to have a desire. And I think a lot of people in this room have a desire not to drink. And that's great. That really is great. I did not know that this is what I was going to end up being or end up doing. But growing up in the South Bronx, I don't know about y'all, but I felt different. Anybody in here feel different? Yeah, I thought so. I hope so. Stand up in this big room. <laughs> but I felt different. I thought there were two groups growing up. Me and all y'all. I was one of those kind of kids that needed sponsorship in kindergarten. You know, I could have made the phone call, you know, they don't like me. I'm feeling kind of scared in here. The sponsor would have said, eat the cookie, take the nap. That would have been the deal. Instruction. I have always been one of those kind of people that needed instruction, needed direction, but didn't know it. You know, I'm... When I popped out the shoes, I was just one of those weird little kids that mom and dad, you know, didn't know, didn't have a book of instructions with me. So they just did the best they could with this weird, creative little kid. They didn't know it was alcoholism. Nobody in my family knew. It was the 60s. You know, I didn't know. Like, like I said, I grew up in the South Bronx where they make all the movies, you know. And the thing was, it's not that environment. What it is, is I felt weird in that environment. And if it had not been for ethyl alcohol, you'd have another speaker here. Because at 13, I found the thing that made, I don't know about y'all, but I'm like chronically self-centered. Chronic. Let me say that again. Chronically self-centered. When I get up, it's, what about me? What's going to happen to me? What's going to me? What's going to me? Me, 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 me. Do you love me? How do I know you love me? I need proof. And if you love me, then how much do you love me? Do you love me all of me or do you just love some of me? What don't you love about me? And how can I change? How can I make you love that part about me? Now, if you're, that, if you're like that, don't drink. Hang out with these folks. Your life will get better. I promise. But that was the way I am. So I'm, I'm that kind of kid. And, and, and you can't live life. Puberty is tough enough for the average individual. But a scared, self-centered, you know, alcoholic little kid that hasn't drank yet is, is impossible. So thank God for a tall can of Coke 45 at 13 years old. Or else I'd be somewhere else. 
probably in the ground. I would have blown my brains out because I couldn't live life on life's terms the way I was thinking and feeling between my ears. I just couldn't do it. I was too bodily and mentally different from the people I was running around with. Now, we did some stuff in the neighborhood that we weren't, that I wasn't necessarily proud of, and I'm, I'm not proud of today. But I never asked them if they were as frightened and as scared and as full of fear and all of that loathing and guilt that I wasn't full of when we were doing that stuff. And if it had not been for ethyl alcohol, I wouldn't have been able to stay on this planet. Tall can of Code 45 in the summer's day in the South Bronx changed all of that. When I knocked that tall can back, I felt like I could, hmm, I could speak as well as Jesse Jackson, play sports as well as Reggie Jackson, dance as well as Michael Jackson. And if it was still working today, I'd be out this tonight being one of them Jacksons. I'm telling you. But it stopped working. If you're new and you're still awake, what, I, what I'm about to say to you is, I drank and it stopped working at some point, and when it stopped working, I couldn't stop working it. You know, that's the deal. That's when, if you want, well, when do you know you're an alcoholic? Well, that's a clue. When you really want to stop and you can't, hmm, just keep coming. We'll, we'll explain all the rest of it to you. You know, just if you got that going on, just stick around. And that was the deal, man. When I, I took that tall can of Coke 45 back, it was wonderful. We used to call it uh, liquid courage in my neighborhood. It made me do a lot of courageous things, I tell you. And, you know, and, and if it worked that well, if one worked, you know how I did it. I was a pig from the gate, you know. I just knocked them back in another quart bottle, and, and oh, it was a mess. It was a mess, but it worked for me, and it was wonderful. I could talk to the girls, and I could be cool, and I could do this stuff, and I wasn't about to give this stuff up. You know, I'm, a, I'm an up-and-coming young alcoholic now. I remember one time I tried, I was dating this young lady, and her ex-boyfriend was going to be at the party. And you know, when you're young and insecure, you got to do something that you're good at. So I challenged her ex-boyfriend to a drinking contest, because that's all I was really good at. <laughs> and uh, I won. We were drinking cheap gin out of the bathroom Dixie because we were too poor to have shot glasses, so we were drinking cheap gin. And I won. He went for a while. I, I passed out later. And they tried to revive me. Um, my heart rate had gotten very slow and dangerously low, and they put me in the shower a couple of times. And what I was suffering from was alcohol poisoning. So this party became automatically went from a regular end of the party to a slumber party because we all stayed over at this lady's house as a result of me passing out, and they couldn't revive me. And that morning, I woke up, and uh, I was really embarrassed and quite, you know, quite mortified by this experience. But I blamed the whole deal on bad onion dip. Had to have been the onion dip. Couldn't have been that gin I was drinking. It had to be the onion dip. You know, and I don't know if there's anybody in the room that's ever been pulled over by a county sheriff for having one too many strawberries. Or, you know, I just I don't think that that's that happens for people like us. You know, but that was the deal. I started denying the consumption. I started minimizing the problems from the very beginning. And that was to characterize my life for many a year. Now, I did not look like an up-and-coming alcoholic. I grew up in New York City. In the Bowery, you knew what an alcoholic looked like. He was laying up against a building, usually had a long overcoat on and a puddle in front of him. You know? And had a brown paper bag. That was an alcoholic. In my neighborhood, we had a guy that had a little green monkey. He would drink Mad Dog 2020. He would drink the Mad Dog. He'd give the monkey a little bit of Mad Dog. And when he passed out, the monkey would guard him so that nobody messed with him. That's what an alcoholic... I didn't have a monkey. So I can't possibly be an alcoholic. I'm 17 years old and I'm well on my way. 
people are wondering, what is wrong with me? I don't know. Now, I got to tell you, my mother was a narcotics officer. <laughs> yeah, made me real popular in the neighborhood, let me tell you. And she said to me, as a young man, she said, you can drink here. Drink in this house. Whatever you want to do, you can do in this house. Now, that was, some people would characterize that as being enabling. I don't like that word, enabling. What she was doing was she was being a loving mom. This is New York City, y'all. I was a young man, and she was very much afraid of what might happen to me if I was in a bad environment or the wrong place at the right time, inebriated, high, or stoned, or whatever. So she was trying to keep her son safe. So, of course, you know I drank at home, and I drank out in the street, and I abused it, and I got in a lot of trouble. And I always say that when an alcoholic is in trouble, he's going to lie. going to lie. And the best way to lie is to believe it yourself. You know, sometimes I'd be telling a lie, and it'd be a sad story, and I'd start crying because it got so sad. Man, this is really bad, you know? So, of course, when I walked in the doors, I couldn't differentiate between the real and the unreal in my own life. I remember telling people that I could swim for so long, I jumped in a pool one time, damn near drowned. That's the deal. I can't function anymore because I've been filling my head with all of this pretend and fake so that you will love me. So that you will never find out the secret. The secret is, I got this idea in my head that I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not well enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not happy enough. I'm not sad enough. I'm just not enough. And I don't want you to find that out because if you find out, I'm doomed. <laughs> so I would do anything. And alcohol helped me do anything. And that was the deal. It was, became a tool. It became the vital element in my personality makeup. I brought all of the inadequacies to alcoholism that I brought. I mean, my first drink, I was already screwed up. And when you told me to put the drink down some 10 or 11 years later, I had all of this to deal with. That's my problem. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not your drinking we're concerned about. It's your sobriety we're concerned about. Because sober's going to be tough, but we can help. Because there are a lot of people that know the road you're going to travel. We just proved it tonight with that countdown. We got from 51 years all the way down to one day. We got a cup. We have definitely got tonight. We have a cup. You got any issue, we'll find somebody in here. Got like they say in A, there's a wrench for every nut in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the deal. We got a cup. Now, by the time I graduated out of high school, it did not seem like I was going to be an up-and-coming young alcoholic, but it definitely was. I had been lying. I had been blacking out, too. Now, if you're going to lie good, you got to remember it. And if you black out and lie, then you're in big trouble. You got it. You have two options. If you if you're going to get caught in lies, you have two options: tell the truth <laughs> or move. <laughs> you know which one I chose. Now I had always wanted to join a gang. I really did. I always wanted in the South Bronx. I always wanted to join some of the gangs that some of my buddies were in. But because I'd gone to very good schools, my mother had sent me to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school all the way to my first year of college. Don't have a problem with the Catholic doctrine. Some of the nuns that taught it to me weren't wrapped too tight, but other than that. <laughs> sorry, sister. Already taken care of it. I've done the work. Those women, I'm going to tell you a story. Those women were, were committed women. I, I admire their level of commitment because I'm not willing to make that kind of commitment. I'm sorry. These were women that went to Harlem and the South Bronx and taught some little toe-headed kids. 
the principles and the things that read and write and arithmetic in the process, and I admire that. But I was, in the book we call ourselves precocious, which is a nice way of saying asshole. Because I asked this nun on a summer's day in, in Harlem, New York, how do you have a virgin birth? And she was not prepared to discuss that profound theological concept with an eight-year-old. So she hit me and sent me to the principal. And that's when I figured out y'all didn't have all the answers. So see, that's, that's what I brought to drinking. That whole idea, old idea. I'm in the second grade. Already got an old idea. <laughs> that's what I brought to alcoholism. And the, the deal was, in my neighborhood, there were gangs. And none of the guys in my neighborhood that, that knew that I was in a, a good school, that I was a smart kid, would allow me to join the gang. Because in my neighborhood at that time, if you had some talent that might get you out of that neighborhood, they wouldn't let you destroy yourself in that silliness and bull and, and, and violence. That was what it was about. And so I didn't join a gang and when coming up in the military. I decided to join a big gang, and that was the Department of Defense. Because when the Department of Defense goes to a gang fight, somebody's going to get hurt. We got nuclear weapons. We're serious. So I rose my hand and joined the United States Air Force. And they didn't know that they were getting an alcoholic. I didn't know I was an alcoholic. So I signed that contract. We both signed that contract for, for three to four years. Hey, they thought they were getting a halfway intelligent young man who they were going to train and send places. They didn't know I had alcoholism. And when you have alcoholism, if you don't know this, here's a little tidbit for you. If you have alcoholism, there is no other employer in your life. Because you're going to do alcoholism to death or insanity. Because alcoholism is what they call a rapacious creditor. It takes everything. It takes everything. Your money, your home, your self-respect, your family. Everything that you might have, alcoholism will take. You can't be a good brother. can't be a good son. can't be a good father, uncle, husband, employer, employee. If you suffer from alcoholism, because all you're going to do is alcoholism. They didn't know that when they signed that contract or they would have tore it up. I didn't know that either. I don't think I would have joined. But what the thing, I think that if you're going to do alcoholism well, you need three things. This is my opinion. You need an income, place to sleep, and you have food, at least initially. Now, the income doesn't have to be yours. The place to sleep doesn't necessarily have to be yours either. And the food is really not that big a deal towards the end anyway, you know, just to get you started. And that's what the military provided me. Now, they did not enable me. They gave that to everybody. And there were a lot of people that took the money, stayed in the place, ate the food, and didn't turn out just as drunk as I was. So it must have been my alcoholism that bloomed as a result of you infusing some money and, and a place to stay. And that's what happened. They sent me out to California, and I was underage drinking and just having a wonderful time terrorizing Monterey, California. Because I'm from New York, and I'm cool. And uh, so that was what it was about. And, you know, of course I got in some trouble. And you know how we fix inside problems. We fix inside problems with outside stuff. You know, I'm feeling kind of bad about myself. Well, I think a new car would probably solve the problem. Or if you're chronically self-centered like I am, I mean, really, you know, in the extreme, and you have an inability to form true partnerships like is quoted in the 12 and 12, then the one thing that you think will solve your problem, being so self-centered, is a relationship. <laughs> See, because I need somebody to help me love me. That's what this is about. Now, alcoholics that I know of don't date. We hunt down and we capture. 
And, and you know, and, and the funny thing about that is there are people that, most, most normal folks, when they get into, they come across an alcoholic will run. There are a bunch of people that don't run all that fast. You know, just keep us in eyesight, you know. And, and I found one of them. I, I found the object of my obsession. And I promised her that I'd be a good dad and a good husband. And I truly meant it. I truly love this woman. But when you suffer from alcoholism, those are empty promises. If you made any of those promises and you suffer from this illness and you're still actively drinking, get you, tell the person that you just made that promise to to get used to disappointment. Because you're not going to measure up. You just can't. Not in drink too. Something's got to go. And I prom we got married and... We went off overseas, and just before we, I got over to Japan to meet with her, a terrible thing happened. My mother got hit by a car, knocked about 50 feet, put in a coma. And on the 2nd of September, 1978, she succumbed to the two weeks that she was in that coma and passed away. And we buried her in 1978. Now, Mom and I had a real tempestuous relationship. Many of the times when I was later in trouble for my drinking, I would blame it on my drunken mother. Because I would come home sometimes on a Saturday night like tonight, and my mother used to play them old... Oh, R&B records, you know, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Otis Redding, you know, over and over and over again on this record player. Oh, yeah, for newcomers, we used to do these things called records. They used to be it's a machine that made the music, and we put a needle on it, and that's how we got our music. And uh, so I would turn this thing off and put her to bed, and I would say to myself, I will never ever do that. It's how humiliating, how embarrassing, how disgusting. And I never did. I passed out on the couch and I played Earth, Wind & Fire records, so it was a completely different deal. But let me tell you something about Mom. Mom never said that she had a problem with her drinking, never had any concerns about her drinking, never communicated to my family that she had any issues with her drinking or some concerns. Never once did she ever go to an AA meeting that I know of. So because Mom never said that she was an alcoholic, I can't call Mom an alcoholic. Because I won't do that to any of y'all until y'all say it. And that fact of the matter is, if, since mom didn't say she was an alcoholic, I can't be an adult child of an alcoholic. I can only be an adult that tends to be childish. That is the only thing. So when mom went in the ground, all that guilt, because I wasn't very good to mom. Mom was probably the smartest woman I ever met. She lost her Mobile, Alabama accent at Howard University. And, you know, taught me how to read before I got in the first grade. But I treated her like crap because I'm a rotten son. I'm self-centered and extreme, and I suffer from alcoholism. I stole from her, lied about her, tried to hit her a couple times. So when she went in the ground, all of that guilt came right here. Now, there's people in this room right now that feel guilt because we're alcoholics. Alcoholics feel intensely, and anything we feel intensely gets intense. And if you have a little bit of guilt, then you got a whole lot of guilt because you're an alcoholic. And that guilt is what sparked the last two years of my drinking, and it was insane drinking. They sent me over to Japan. In Japan, they drive on the wrong side of the road. You know what I mean? They drive on the other side. I get so drunk sometimes, I couldn't remember what side I was supposed to be on. I drive down the middle. I remember recording the car stolen in the back of the NCO club, and it was the only car in the parking lot at the time. And they have a weird way of looking at things. If you can't see it, you obviously can't drive it. People like that react to the way we behave. I love it when I hear a drunk walk in the readings of Alcoholics Anonymous and say, well, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. <laughs> yeah, buddy. 
we're what keeping the psychiatric department at most major universities working, you know? Because we affect people, <laughs> you know? There's an old timer that said to, said to me, at least seven other people were affected by my alcoholism. And at least that many should be affected by my recovery, if I'm serious about this thing called recovery. But by the time we got over, by the time I got overseas, I was insane. I was driving. I was driving on the wrong side of the road. I, my, I was. I had a brand new little baby girl in 1980. Beautiful little thing. And her mom and her were many times waiting in our apartment that we had to live off the base on, in, in northern Japan, where I was stationed. And uh, in that place, we had to heat it with kerosene. And I was in charge of the money. So I had to buy the kerosene, and many times I was in some bar somewhere in northern Japan drinking while that kerosene ran out, and my daughter and my, my, mother, my wife were extremely cold because it got very cold in northern Japan. I remember a couple of times with that baby, because, you know, sometimes babies want their bottle. You know, and I'm an alcoholic. I want my bottle. And sometimes my bottle was more important than the baby's bottle. And at 3 o'clock, a few times my wife came into the bedroom to see her screaming daughter at the foot of at my feet and me passed out on the couch with a bottle of Seagram 7. Wonderful, wonderful scene. You know, so if I ever think I only hurt me by my drinking, all I got to do is just reread my fourth step. <laughs> because there are a lot of people that suffered, and I, many of them are nameless. I don't know. I, I, I lied and cheated and stole from a lot of folks in that base. So quite naturally, there were a lot of people who was concerned about Sterling's drinking. Sterling wasn't, you know, but uh, there were a lot of people that were. And they leaned on me, and they finally, you know, put me to, in a position where, you know, I had to be backed into a uh, group program. They said, uh, Sterling, we need you to go to group. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to group, but group is usually encompassed with a lot of people that go to group, and, you know, you drinking? Nope. You drinking? Nope. You using? Nope. You know, everybody's drinking and using, you know, but we just, we're just grouping one another. You know, that's all we knew. And from Monday through Friday, I was being grouped. And I would go into that club on Friday afternoon to get some of the money that we used in Japan to the end and, and go take my family out. And I would go see some of my friends. I mean, my old friends. These guys, I can't remember their name. But they're my oldest and dearest friends. We have spent many a night fixing the world's problems from that bar stool. These are guys that were in their 40s, looked like they were in their 80s. They were my sponsors in that bar. They were doing it to death. You know, every day, just drinking to, to hang in there. And I would go in there to, to visit with these guys, and I'd have a Coke, and they'd have a beer, I'd have another Coke, and they'd have a rum and Coke, and they'd start telling Vietnam stories, and I'd have another Coke, and they'd tell some more Vietnam stories, and then I'd have a rum and Coke, and I'd start telling Vietnam stories. And I joined in 77. It was over. And I'd lose my car. One time I woke up next to a rather large Japanese gentleman singing New York, New York. And I had to be at work in six hours. I had no earthly idea where I was. So quite naturally, the, the powers that be were really concerned. They thought they may have to intensify my treatment. If you ever heard that term, we need to intensify your regimen of treatment. You're in trouble. That's what that means. I was in serious trouble. My job was hanging in the balance. She was no longer speaking to me. So here I was in trouble. And they said, we're going to probably have to send you to uh, the alcohol education is what they called it. And they said, I, my, my commander, my captain said to me, Sterling, I'm giving you two weeks to either volunteer or I'm going to send you down there on my order. If you don't make it through, you're out of the Air Force. Now, I know there's many people in this room know exactly how long it took me to make that decision to volunteer. 
two weeks. We got our gun to our head. Isn't that amazing? The ultimate in ego is an alcoholic who's dying. And they say, either do this or you're going to have to go to AA. And we go, you know, okay, well, let me think about it. Here we are. We, we get a choice here. We get a choice. Happiness and usefulness, insanity or death. They lay it right in front of us. And all of us go, um, okay, uh, insanity or death, uh, happiness and usefulness. I get the family back and a decent job. Okay, all right, let me think about this for a couple of days. How hard is that insanity or death going to hurt? Okay? You know what I mean? That's how we, that's the way we think. We got a fatal illness. All we got to do is call some guy, read the book, show up in a couple of places a few hours a week. And it's arrested. And we gripe. I don't want to go to that meeting. I don't need a sponsor. Service work? Are you crazy? You know, I mean, that's the stuff we do. And there are people with fatal illnesses that would, would, well, they would sell the deeds to their house to get just what we have to do. People, you ask some cancer patient that's terminal if he wouldn't mind reading a book and calling a guy and going to a few meetings and his, his disease would be arrested. Boy, he like that. But we're the only people on the planet. God's difficult kids. <laughs> we're the only ones on the planet that balk at that kind of thing. And of course, I took two weeks. They sent me down to treatment, taught me everything I need to know about alcoholism in, in 40 days. They just told me, of all the, I saw every Chalk Talk movie I saw, I'll Quit Tomorrow, uh, Days of Wine and Roses. I saw all that stuff. I felt so bad for you people. I'm willing to make a donation. I really was. Because y'all were a sorry bunch of folks. I didn't take none of that stuff personal. We had, a, we had an election like three or four days before we graduated. Who was most likely to drink six months after getting out of there? And there were 12 of us, 12 angry men, I like to call us. It would have been unanimous if I had voted. So I went back to my base armed with about 40 days of sobriety. And, you know, because I put that, that drink down on the 2nd of June, 1981, at 7 and 7. And if I had known I was going to be in Cincinnati again, <laughs> I might have finished it. I don't know. But the deal is, I got back to the base, and I, I, was, sent, I was sentenced to a little place that had this little silver circle thing with a blue background and had AA on it. It was right next to the rec center. And I go there. And what I saw when I walked in the door was a picture of these two old white guys. These 12 and 12s. These easy does it. Think, think, think. First things first. This too shall pass. You know, live and let live. A beat up desk. Always a beat up desk. I've been to three places and shit. <laughs> Y'all got beat up desks. <laughs> But you got one with a credenza. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's high-level AA, boy, when you got a credenza in one of them. But <laughs> that's all right. But, so I see this beat-up desk, all these people, and these people are smiling from ear to ear. Hi, how you doing? My name is so-and-so. This is, this, get ready for the meeting. You want a cup of coffee? Here, have a seat. We're about to start the meeting. Woo! And it pissed me off. How dare you love me more than I love me? This ain't funny. I can't drink for the rest of my natural life. You know, and I'm not sure none of y'all are sober. I'm thinking you're on drugs. Because nobody can be that damn happy and not be drinking. And we got people, they start, they start to meet, they start with a prayer, end with a prayer, pass the basket. Aha. I got it now. I know what you guys are. Y'all are a cult. Y'all gonna try to jump me to Jesus. 
or make me shave my head and sell books at the airport. I know it. That's what this is all about. Y'all trying to put the move on me. Now, see, I had grown up a Catholic, and I, I shunned Catholicism very early in my scholastic uh, scholastic career. I had been involved in some other diff different religions, many of which uh, Doc Sam uh, mentioned before he started the prayer today. And, uh, you know, I was, I was into this stuff. I mean, at one time, I practiced Islam for a while, and... Uh, then I, I left that and I was, I was, I met this young lady who was in a Baptist choir and I wanted what she had and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. So I joined the Baptist choir. Now they got loaned out to a Methodist church and on any given Sunday with a hangover, I was a failed Catholic who was a semi-practicing Muslim singing in a Baptist choir in a Methodist church. I was one of those kind of drunks that would open the door to those Jehovah's Witnesses and have a discussion with them and win. They would leave. I prided myself on my ability to shoot holes in whatever religion you profess. Because I was on this spiritual journey to find the one religion that would allow me to be a complete asshole and still get into heaven. And never found it. In every one of those religions, what I encountered were people that made a good third step. They made a decision to turn their will and their lives over to the care of whoever it was, Allah, Buddha, Jesus Christ, or whomever. And they lived their lives in accordance with that decision for the rest of their natural lives to the best of their ability. And that's all we're trying to do in here. So that's what I've discovered, is we're like-minded individuals. We may not normally mix, but we are like-minded individuals. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, the people in here believe that there is a spiritual solution to a problem that you no longer have the capability of solving. There is a spiritual solution here, and I would strongly recommend you hang out in here until you completely understand that spiritual solution before you walk out the door. Because this may be the last house on the block for you. It certainly is for me. You know, the deal was, I was sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Something about you people attracted me. Now, I'm going to tell you, during that meeting, I heard some weird stuff. There were people talking about stuff, I mean, and laughing? Yeah, I've been to six treatment centers. <laughs> yeah, they had to strap me down on a four-point restraint. <laughs> yeah, I tested .035 on my land. I hadn't had a drink that day. <laughs> I was embarrassed for y'all. Because you don't talk about that kind of stuff in public. But I knew that you were telling the truth. About, I knew, I inherently knew that you were telling the truth. It just was fascinating to me that you could be so matter-of-fact about it. And that's what, attracted, that's what attracted me. I kept coming back. There was a guy there, George. George was a big, tall guy. I later learned that he was teaching hand-to-hand -hand combat to, to some of the SEALs and, and Special Forces teams on the base. But George is a big guy with a beard, big Navy guy. George loved hugging folks. Now, I'm from New York. You're another man. You ain't hugging me. Sorry. George would chase me around a little room <laughs> to hug me. One day he caught me. I got hugged. Now, after a while, I started to really look forward to these hugs. Now, I'm going to tell you, six months over, I was starting to think I might be gay. If you're, if you're entertaining a crazy thought, I'm going to give you a little clue. Share it with somebody who's been around here a little while. Because they can help you with it. They can get you back on the track, because I was thinking I was gay. You know, George, I think I'm gay. No, you can't be gay. You're married and you have a kid. Oh, okay, all right, fine.
Because you got you got to make room for the other thoughts you're going to have later. You can't spend a whole lot of time with those initial crazy thoughts. It's a time waster. So just share them with somebody. Get them out. You know, so I was a year sober. These people are taking care of me. They really did. They made me the coffee maker. See, an A group can be cunning, baffling, and powerful. They'll make you do stuff you don't want to do. Because they said, Sterling, we need your help. Whatever I can do for you fine people. <laughs> we need somebody to make coffee. Okay. I don't know how to make coffee. And I make bad coffee. To this day, I make bad coffee. And I would, they gave me the key. And I'm like, oh my God, I got the key. Drunks could die if I don't make the coffee. So I would get there two hours early for a 20-minute commitment. Get the big old things of coffee. Now, I never made coffee before. And I figured there's about 15 people showing up at this meeting. So I'm going to make 15 Illuminati cap things in there. Yep, coffee makers. There's ex-coffee makers in here. Y'all know exactly what happened. I was making espresso. I wasn't making coffee. But they would drink this stuff, you know. Their left eye would close. <laughs> we used a lot of cream and sugar. So for two weeks, they drank my coffee. And we got that circle. They said, well, we need another coffee maker. But next two weeks, three people volunteered, you know. Thank you, Sterling. Keep coming back. Those people that put up with a lot of stuff. They asked me to be the chairperson because I thought I was so eloquent. You know, I was the sickest guy in there. And they knew I would stay for the whole meeting if I had to sit in the front and have the gavel and sit behind the desk. So that's why they asked me to be the chairperson. You know, they slick. So if you're new and they ask you to do something, it's because they want to keep you around. You know, not just to laugh at you, you know. <laughs> Part of it is to laugh at you. I, mean, I ain't gonna lie. Yeah, but most of it is to see how well you're gonna take this thing called sobriety. And I took to it because they loved me. I, just, I was in love with Alcoholics Anonymous after that first year. I only, they only had a small problem, just a little, little problem, just a real small problem. Just wasn't enough black folks in AA as far as I was concerned. So I was gonna dedicate my life to getting thousands of African Americans in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because see, I wanted another picture up on that wall. Yeah, Bill, Bob, Sterling. Hey, the next generation, you know? I rewrite the book later. I got back to D.C. on leave, and I went to a meeting on Southside in Southeast D.C., and it seemed to be thousands of black people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Many of them sober longer than me, which kind of pissed me off. But I've always been a meeting maker, and that's, that's a good thing, because I heard in my home group, meeting makers make it. I've gone to meetings for all the wrong reasons. Let me tell you, newcomer, I've gone to meetings just to, to see what somebody looked like. I've gone to meetings to judge. I've gone to meetings to play games. I've gone to meetings and gone to meetings and gone to meetings. And gradually what happened was I started to hear what was being said in those meetings. And if you are hearing what is being said in those meetings and you don't have the benefit of guidance and sponsorship in, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to make a statement. And it's a bold one, but it's one I feel strongly about. If you don't have guidance... Some of the stuff you hear in a meeting will drive you out of your blessed mind. And I had a second pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization at five years of sobriety because I was not being sponsored. I did not know how to apply these principles in all my affairs. And all I was doing was being a glad hand, hi, man, about town for an hour to an hour and a half in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. That will kill you. Kill you dead. I am grateful to my higher power that so, at some point in time, I made this decision. I decided to either kill myself or get a sponsor. <laughs> Equally tragic decisions. <laughs> I figured I'd go for the sponsor, I can always kill myself later. 
My God with a sense of humor sent me to Omaha, Nebraska, which does not sound like AA Mecca. But I met a man there who immediately, immediately, the first time I met him, pissed me off. He was in a room full of people that did picture them two old white guys, and they're all going, ooh, they were happy, they were sober. I was sober. I, I like, if, you, if you're one of those kind of people that's sober, I love you, I do, I truly do. Stick around, because you're fun to watch. I don't want what you have. I've had it, I don't like it. <laughs> don't like it. So I'm hanging around with these people, and this guy walked up to me, and he circled some meetings in a where and when, and said, if you don't want to hide in Alcoholics Anonymous, here's some meetings you can attend. Now I'm mad. I'm taking his inventory. I took his inventory that day. I took his inventory the next day. I took his inventory the third day. Now I'm going to let you in a little secret. If you don't have a sponsor, and you've taken somebody's inventory for three straight days, they've been up in your head for that long, might as well get them for the sponsors. They're the same sex as you. Because if they're going to spend that much time up in your head, at least they can clean up while they're up there. <laughs> I asked this man. I'm serious. Sponsorship is the one thing. Self-centered people, selfish self-centered people have relationship issues. I don't know how many times I've heard this in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, do you have a sponsor? Well, no, I don't want nobody telling me what to do. Guess what? If you ever sat in the back of a police car, you have been sponsored. <laughs> If you've ever said, well, I don't know why I did that, Your Honor, you are being sponsored. If you have a parole officer, you are sponsored. I want a sponsor that at least is showing up in meetings, you know? That's the deal. This guy, I asked him to be my sponsor, and he made me say, please. Doesn't that suck? He's a cruel, cruel man. Cruel man. Because he has never really been concerned about my feelings. He's always been concerned about my actions. Because when you stand before a judge, the judge does not ask about, well, were you feeling fearful when you uh, stole the uh, bottle of Jack Daniels out of the liquor store? Or um, was it low self-esteem that resulted in you crashing that car and hitting the 17 others all the way down the park? They never ask that question, do they? They always say, well, did he break the law? Yes. Okay, you go to jail. That's simple. And that's what my sponsor knew. And I did See, because I got a marriage, and I got a family, and I'm, I'm five, six years sober, and I'm stark raving sober, and I'm dry, and I need solutions. I need solutions. I'd have read that book. I know the song. I can tell you how it works better than you can. I can quote the traditions. I can tell you which page numbers they are. We got to change them. I know fourth edition. I can't remember none of them no more. I get them all screwed up. I don't even tell my pigeons what page numbers to read anymore, because I don't know what the hell page numbers are anymore. You know, in the stories. I know the first 164 is still the same, but just, it's a new book. <laughs> messing with me, <laughs> you know, and change something in A again. But I tell you, I had to have a solution. I had to have a solution, and this man had one for me. Didn't seem like it. We had, I, there were times when I would call Reggie on the phone, and I would say, okay, Red, here's the deal. I just had an argument with her, and this is what she said, which means this, and this is what I said, and you know that she's crazy, so this is what I think we ought to do about her. And he would go, go mow the lawn. And I go, is this 291? Did you just hear what I said? Go mow the lawn. Now, I have an allergy. When I cut grass, my allergy gets so bad, all I can do is take some aspirin and lay down. And I can't fight. That was the deal. I can't fight. See, because I had to learn how to keep my mouth shut. See, I thought my program was making sure she had a program. I didn't know that she had a God. I never asked. 
You know, she had her own God, her own higher power, and I was trying to fix her so that I'd be wonderful. Just don't work that way. He taught me how to stay on my side of the street. He taught me how to try to be a man in my own home. He taught me that washing dishes is a spiritual concept. I didn't know that. He taught me that being a responsible man meant that I was going to have to listen for a change. That I couldn't just dictate. That when I'm afraid, what I was supposed to do is drop to my knees, get up off my knees, and do something. Because I couldn't wait for the, for the burning light to change my attitude and revolutionize my thinking and rocket me into a fourth dimension. I have to take actions. And what he did was he always made sure that I understood that and made me take those actions so that I could grow up and be a man. I learned with those people, it was about 500 people that went to my home group, and I, I, I learned their names and their stories, and I was having a wonderful time in AA, got to about 10, 11 years sober, went up the flight of stairs in, in our house and on the base, and I asked my wife, do you really want to be married to me? Never ask a question you're not prepared for the answer to. She said no. And I was crushed. My wife and, and daughter went back to the East Coast, and I stayed out in California, and I thought I was a failure as a man. And you know how we do pain. You already, I already told you how we do guilt. You know how we do pain. Walk in the meeting, what's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I'm fine. Fine, damn it. Go out of the meeting, sitting in the car going, how come nobody wants to talk to me? <laughs> they don't like me anymore. You know, my sponsor was a smart man. He walked up to me and put his arm around me and said, you know, you know we're really lucky to have the, to have the only man ever to get divorced in Alcoholics Anonymous here. <laughs> These are mean people. Mean. So I grew up. I made. A, I did an inventory about that relationship and vowed not to do that kind of stuff again. And God with his sense of humor sent me another lady that I'm totally, madly, passionately in love with. That's for the Al-Anons because they all spy on one another. So I want that documented, Al-Anons, that I totally, passionately in love. No, I truly do. I love this lady. And we developed a relationship. And, you know, God with his sense of humor. I did this one different. I became honest. Was I a fire drill? Okay. All right. You know? I became honest. I became an honest man. Ooh, water. Cool. And in that relationship, what God with his sense of humor, he separated us because I got stationed in California. I was stationed in Omaha and I realized that now I was going to have to go to California. And I'm wondering why my higher power would do something like that to me. And of course, I've got a little ego problem. The reason why he was doing that was because I was, the way I figured it, there were drunks dying by the thousands in Alcoholics Anonymous out in California. And I had a message of salvation for him. So, of course, I get in my little four-banger Nissan stands and go driving over the I-80 through the Rocky Mountains, going to save everybody, come out of Reno and just fix all them folks. And that Nissan stands are broken in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Transmission fell out of that sucker. And I found three things in Cheyenne, Wyoming. A La Quinta Inn, an Amco station, and right down near Pizza Hut, right down off of like Main Street, there's this little trailer. And when I went in there, I saw a picture of them two old white guys. Beat up death, 12 and 12. Them orange ashtrays. Remember them orange ashtrays? Jim. Always a guy named Jim. Always. Always a guy named Jim. You know, gotta have a guy. You can't have AA unless you got a guy named Jim. <laughs> and I spent a couple of days in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and then I went to Sacramento during one of its worst rainy seasons. And in, in the five years that I spent in Sacramento, California, what I got did, what I did was I got in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, just like I got in the middle in, in Omaha. And the reason why I did that was not because I'm cool or I'm hip or I'm talented. I did it because I was desperate. 
See, I am desperate to have a solution in my life because un, without solutions in my life, my alcoholism runs crazy. And I get these weird thoughts. You know, and I, I, I didn't want to get involved in a group. Somebody walked up to me. You know how it is when you don't want a job? When you don't want a job, that's when they want, uh, Sterling, we need your help. Oh, man. We need somebody in a group. And my mind is going, no! I know how them people are. No! And my mouth said, sure, I'd be honored. And I got involved in central office, and I got involved in this and that and the other, and I got involved with being hollered at by old-timers and being judged by newcomers. And I got into all of that. Man, I got in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. We used to have a monthly speakers meeting. They used to have to need the, the floor vacuumed. I would vacuum the floor. I wouldn't vacuum the floor in my apartment, but I would vacuum the floor at this meeting. Because I needed to stay in the middle. I needed to be able to look you in the eye and not be afraid. Because if I can do it here, I can do it out there. And in order for me to do it here, I got to do some work. And that work involved me getting in the middle, doing the service work. I got some guys that the sponsor out there that were weird guys. Weird. They had all kinds of problems. So we'd have to climb in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to see. Because I believe there's a solution for every problem in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So now we got to go through this book. And we got to go through this book together so that I make sure I know where it is. And those guys are calling me and I'm still trying to maintain this relationship back in Omaha with her. And I'm doing the deal and I'm working and everything. And it's, and it's crazy. I'm busy. But I grew up and I learned how to stay sober. And I learned how to be a kind of man that my parents would be proud of. I learned how to be a dad because instead of just sending that check, what I was doing was listening to my daughter grow up from a long distance. She was still on the East Coast. And sometimes it would really hit me at three o'clock in the morning. That's my suicide hour. I don't know what kind of suicide hour yours is, but three o'clock in the morning is my suicide hour. And sometimes at three o'clock in the morning, this thought comes, you're a rotten father. You abandoned that little girl. I dropped her on the floor a few times when my bottle was more important than hers. I judged her when she came home with those little, you know, little drawings that they do in kindergarten. I would assess it like it was a Renoir painting and give her critiques, you know? And all of that stuff will come at three o'clock in the morning. The only thing that I know that will counteract those kind of insane thoughts are the things that I, I would think next is, well, you do make sure that you send her a card, you make sure you send her gifts on birthday and holidays, and you speak with her at least once or twice a week. I love that little kid. And all them years that I was separated from her, what I did was I tried to maintain a conscious contact with her as best as I could. And the deal is that she's a wonderful young lady. She's 23 years old. She graduated from college with honors. I'm not bragging. That's just a fact. You know. What's great about that, I got a chance to speak in Hagerstown, Maryland. And she lived in Hyattsville at the time. And she came out and spent the weekend with me, with you. And you all were on your best behavior, and she was very impressed with Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> because now she understands why she has the dad that she has. And that was as a direct result of taking actions. The relationship I had with my wife, we got married, and then I had to, be, I had to go back to California and finish up the last two years. I retired out of the Air Force for 20 years, 3 months, 17 days. And then I had to get a real job. And I came back home to Omaha, Nebraska, and she's got a son. A son who's 14 years old. And she's got a stepdaughter. I mean, she's got a daughter. I've got a stepdaughter that was 25 at the time. My, that, that lady has given us four grandchildren. I've got a family at home. And i got to now learn how to take the stripes off my sleeve, how to roll them up, go to work, and be a family man. 
And I don't have any idea how to do this. I barely know how to be a grown-up. And now you're asking me to be a father and a grandpa and a stepdad and an uncle and all of this stuff. And I walked back into Omaha, Nebraska, and that man that pissed me off some years ago had a solution for me. He said, you've been doing this kind of stuff in AA on all that service work you were doing. Those were relationships. Surprise. The relationship you and I have had over the last 11 years, that's a relationship. Surprise. You know that thing you have with your higher power, prayer and meditation? That's a relationship. Surprise. You already know how to do this stuff. Just do it at home. Just do it at the job. Do it on the interstate. Do it in the grocery store when the lady in front of you has 15 items and it says 10 or less. Do it then. Because you already know how to do it. And that was the deal. That's what I'm trying to do today. I'm trying to live a sober life so that I can celebrate. And because in that celebration is the thing that I guess characterized this for the last 63 years, Thanksgiving. In that celebration of my sobriety, in, in living life on life's terms, by the principles of AA, in the, the steps and the traditions, I'm celebrating what God can do with a person that is, has the inability to form true partnerships, that is chronically self-centered, that is selfish and insane, and it's from New York on top of that. And regardless of all those handicaps, I get to be a respected and sometimes loved human being by not only the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, but by the rest of the kids on the planet from time to time. Now that's an amazing thing. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would strongly recommend you not give that kind of stuff up. Because, you know, recovery is like sex. It's more fun when it's with other people. And there are plenty of people in here that are willing to do the deal. Yeah, I know, the newcomers love that one, don't they? Y'all gonna hear that a lot. <laughs> I tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's a wonderful thing to be an Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you don't know that, you should. If you're wondering whether or not you're drunk, here's a, here's a guarantee. If you're listening to somebody like me drone on and on and on and on and on about their alcoholism or their recovery, and you do this, give up, <laughs> buy the book, get a sponsor, because only alcoholics do this when alcoholics are talking. Al-Anons do this. There are two books in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Alan that kind of characterize the way it is. As Bill Sees It, that's an AA, and Lois Remembers, that's an Alan. <laughs> I thank God for the program of Alan because my relationship with my wife today is a direct result of both of us being sponsored. Both of us learning how to take actions from somebody outside of our own head. I am so grateful that we have an opportunity in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to affect those seven other people out there with our recovery, to be the big book that they may only read. And I, I can be an example of that, because I've learned how to do it from you all. I really have, and you have been, the, the, the old-timers in this fellowship have been my heroes, and we've lost a few over the last few years, and the people that walk in the door that are brand new are, are my motivation to keep walking this path, because I don't want to go back to where y'all are at. I love you, and I'm glad to see you, but I don't want to be you. I've, I've worked too hard. I'm not willing to give it up. That's the deal. I will close with a little, little story that characterizes what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. Guy was trying to paint his house, and he had a two-year-old helping him. And you know two-year-olds are no help. 
So he found a magazine that had all of the pictures, the picture of the entire continent, all the continents of the globe, on this circular kind of magazine cover. He tore it up into pieces and sent the two-year-old into the next room to make the figure out the puzzle, thinking that it would keep the child occupied for quite some time. About five minutes went by, and the little girl comes out and says, I'm finished. He says, how could you have finished that so quickly? You know, some of them places, I wasn't sure where they were. And she goes, well, there was a man on the other side. Put the man together, the world comes together. See, the deal is, I came in here with a lot of issues. And y'all said, well, I'm, you know, well, I'm sure those are compelling issues to destroy the world, Sterling, but, but just for a little while, let's put all of that aside. Let's give you a program that'll solidify a relationship with a God that loves you. Let's give you a way in which to practice these principles in a place that's safe, free of criticism or judgment. And then you can practice them out there. Let's give you a bunch of people that understand and empathize and will help you in whatever way, they, shape they can. And armed with that, let's go back out into the world and try to wrest satisfaction. Trudge this road to happy destiny. I defy anybody to give, like has been quoted by our, our, one of our co-founders, to give this thing as much enthusiasm as you did drinking or using for 90 days, 100 days, or 2,000 days, whatever day. You and your sponsor work out how many days. But I defy you to give it that much effort. And if you don't believe or see that you have the same feeling about alcoholics anonymous I have tonight, call me up and call me a liar. I'm grateful to be here and sober. Thank you.